Hello and welcome to the next class. I'm Rob Birdso, your host, and joining me as always is my co-host, Tom Burnford. Tom, good to see you. Good to see you, Rob. How are you doing? I'm good. I love your, your Irish background again. Uh, there you go. Absolutely. Green is green is the color. And uh, yep, looking forward to our discussion as schools get underway as well. Exciting times at the beginning of the new academic year. A lot going on, right? Absolutely. And uh, we're joined today with our guest, Joe Womack. I've known Joe since about 2007 when he was the executive director of the Fulcrum Foundation in Seattle. And then has moved to Los Angeles where he's the executive director of the Specialty Family Foundation. And he's in his office, joining us in his office from Los Angeles, where I've met him a number of times. Actually had some good lunches right around the corner at that restaurant, Joe. I forget that one, but they still open, Joe? They are, but they've had their times. Uh, they've yeah. had their times. Yes, the, uh, the downtowns have not had the best experience with the restaurants these days. That's right. Well, Joe, welcome to the next class. We're glad to have you join us today. It's a, an honor to be with both of you, and I've known both of you for years, and so you guys are always at uh, the edge of the important conversations in schools. Thank <laughs> I you. don't know about that, but we, we're working uh, on it. <laughs> we're working on it. We're trying. So, Joe, uh, for our listeners that don't know the Specialty Family Foundation, can you give us just a little background on the organization and, and your work that you guys are doing? Absolutely. Especially uh, Family Foundation is a private family foundation. As you said, we're headquartered in Santa Monica, but our work is really in the inner urban, inner city areas of Los Angeles County. Our mission statement is to alleviate the conditions that lead to persistent poverty, which is pretty ambitious. Uh, uh, but we take that literally and humbly. And so really what we mean is, is that we're not trying to eliminate poverty from the world. Uh, uh, and we don't think uh, in our humility with our medium asset size that that we can even eliminate um, the causes of poverty. But there are so many conditions that um, so obviously keep families intergenerationally impoverished. And without um, upsetting those conditions in a positive way, um, it's so obvious uh, that, that, that over generations, we've kept families impoverished in, in, in our culture. It takes intentionality. So we look at, at any given moment at a number of conditions that we've identified are present, especially so in Los Angeles, that we might be able to, with our resources, make a difference on. Um, and there is no single um, condition uh, that I personally have devoted myself more to uh, in my career and vocation uh, that this foundation is more devoted itself to and that I have witnessed with my own eyes to make a bigger difference uh, on intergenerational poverty besides maybe the family, uh, which we really can't do the same kind of work with um, as the, the presence and of an access to the right size education for each child. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the absence of that, if you grow up uh, abjectly poor, uh, we believe here at the foundation that you will most likely be an adult whose children are born in the same circumstances that wow. you were born into. So, Joe, you just said you just said the right education for each child. Yeah. That's an important phrase because that is not the same as saying um, the same education for every child. No. There is a distinction there, right? And it's child-focused. And um, I don't know, when you said that, that struck me because I think a lot of times, you know, uh, it's easy in education to say one size fits all, um, whereas every student is different. We know that students learn different, and we know it's also hard to create educational systems that work for – that that are the right education for each child. Um 
that's a that's a powerful statement. Just I think it is. I think it's also um, I think incredibly important from a philosophical standpoint to state it up front because if instead your 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 objective is to try to um, create a single educational approach that works for everybody, that's going to lead to a very different behavior than you say. I'm trying to create a system of access where everybody has access to a menu of choices. And within those, there's multiple ones that would work, but that they find their way to the best one for them in as smooth and fast and easy as way as possible, that there's not barriers there. And so I really believe very strongly that at the outset, if you don't start with West philosophy, so our philosophy here at the foundation is the choice and options and empowerment at the parent and student level have a huge impact on the outcomes on the back end. Those are inputs. And if your input is, is everybody gets this, and it's singular and homogenous. I just think that that's going to require a very different strategy. Maybe someone can succeed at that somewhere there out there. I'm skeptical. Uh, but at the foundation here, we're, we we look at Catholic schools, inner city Catholic schools, uh, and also I would say, but we don't work with them as much rural, low income serving Catholic schools as the most some of the most stark examples of why that why I just said uh, what I said. Um, you know, you meet one Catholic school, you've met one. Uh, and I'm not saying that's not true in other sectors. I, my father just retired after 45 years of public school education. I'm a pub, graduate of public high school and it had a tremendous experience. I support that. Charter schools have done so much in, in unique ways for our, our, our country and also have pockets of, of improvement necessary. There's no perfect place. We want every school to succeed. Um, but schools, in my experience, are underappreciated in, in a number of ways. And one of them is, is that they're community-based schools where, if, where, where the sense of ownership is, is dramatically higher uh, amongst the stakeholder groups. You know, teachers. So, you know I, I had the privilege, and Rob knows this, last year of, of – uh, on an interim basis, being the, the temporary president of a Catholic high school, a small one. And we had the flexibility to provide virtual education for students who really couldn't come in because of COVID. We sent some kids to do chemistry at the local community college. And COVID forced us to innovate, and we did. And we really were able to provide different students, different families with different solutions. Um, and to be honest, I, I loved it. And the parents loved it. And it wasn't one size fits all. And I think that's that is one of the things I like, too, about Catholic schools is that ability to uh, to meet families where they're at and maybe not to provide all the options, but at least some uh, some options based upon the student's need. Absolutely. And so you see um, it, it must happen. It does happen in the macro, but you see in these crystallized moments, the truth of it, I can recall, and this is a rather benign uh, example, but years ago, probably around the time I met Rob in Seattle, I won't name the places, but there was a school in a, in a, in a district. It's a Catholic school existing in a public school district that was undergoing change. The public school district had changed their school schedule substantially, both the start of the school year, end of the school year, and, and also the cadence of their school day. It has been a process of a task force that I think had run in the, in the school district for, for a decade that landed on this new schedule. Well, the Catholic school had to make a decision. Are they going to start and end at the same time as the public school and follow that schedule or not? Because parents were affected by it because they might have kids in both dis in both set settings. And so they decided to go ahead and try to emulate the public school district schedule and not having been through that process. And so the school year started and um, 
uh, it was immediately a train wreck for everybody. Public school, Catholic school. Just, it just didn't work uh, for them in that time, in that place. Uh, and they, there were some mistakes that had been missed in the assumptions. No, no harm, no foul. Uh, it just was reality to the parents, the kids, the teachers. Everybody knew it wasn't working by the end of September. Uh, the Catholic school just switched back by October 15th, and and um, and and they, they had met with the parents. They did some surveys, and they just made the decision. Uh, you know, th- th- that district took years to undo the decision they made. And by the time that they had made the decision to undo it, who knows if for those kids what the right choice was going to be. And so it's right. the nimbleness of a community-based approach that prioritizes these kids right here, right now, and everybody that's here with the care and uh, uh, for this ought to have have a voice as we experience something. So then fast forward to uh, Katrina, uh, you know, New Orleans, everything shuts down. Well, well, the Catholic schools were back online and opened their doors to everybody in the city, including the, the it, about a whole year before the public schools were back uh, in operation. It's not a con- condemnation of the other system. It's a, 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 a lionization of the strength of Catholic schools in this one particular way. And then here we are once again in a, in a major world event. And, you know, we have a we have. Uh, in our group of schools that we've worked most intensely with, about 27 Catholic schools that serve about 90% or more free and reduced lunch populations here in LA. We have about 100 of those here in LA out of the 250 Catholic schools in the diocese. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could tell you about a school up in the valley that didn't close. You know, they opened on an emergency childcare basis, they weren't teaching kids. Uh, but because parents were, were single parents and healthcare essential employees, they opened their doors and got themselves certified to take care of those kids as a childcare provider during the day. Wow. They added a place with internet for them and safe ways and all their classrooms. They had about 60 kids in September of 2020 going to school every day. Well, that school's enrollment went up by about 50 and they never really shut down. Uh, other, other, and it was the best decision for them. And for those parents, uh, you know, not 10 miles away, I know I could tell you of schools that didn't have a single day of in-person. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of hybridized, unique options, sometimes where they're operating populations, sometimes they're doing three days a week in person. The point is, is that we watched about 50 different types of things happen in just the 250 schools here in Los Angeles with tremendous guidance, actually, of, of paths to choose from from the superintendent's office. But the idea that each community will choose a viable path, not choose from any path, but choose a viable path, but to presume that every community's path should be the same, when you sometimes have communities where everybody's two parent households, you know, both both parents now at home all day long, you know, and is it really safe and best for those kids to be intermixing with everybody? Well, in other communities, not a single <laughs> two parent household, really, um, and not anybody at home. And so why would both those places do the same thing? And I think that that's what I want to get at is that I really believe that and uh, in, in the inter- intersectionality of of stakeholders, and I think that that's what Catholic schools do very well as community, and uh, with with shared values, and, and really it's all based around wrapping themselves around these really uh, important uh, uh, future influencers, the kids, and uh, and making sure that they don't fall through the cracks. Uh, um, absolutely, uh, feel like that that's a Catholic school strength, and I think it's something to be learned from. Yep. Joe, most of our listeners and guests and have, uh, have been uh, school leaders, have been university leaders. Um, you're our first uh, philanthropist 
uh, person running a philanthropy. Uh, tell us, and for our listeners, where, where do you see philanthropy going the next few years? Yeah, well, I think it's hopeful to start with where we are and where we've come from because you can get a sense of directionality there, you know, because this is in motion. And I've never felt a period of motion, uh, you know, because it can be a pretty uh, secretive, arm's length space, especially mine, private family philanthropy. My last job, as you mentioned, you met me was a public foundation, raising the money from a community for its schools. So we had like 15,000 supporters that funded the mission and then really felt like they, we were their foundation. And I think it's a different attitude in philanthropy when you're a community or public foundation, a community foundation, maybe perhaps, uh, you know, with the diversity of, of support versus coming from a private source of wealth, like private foundations are, which is in and of itself a privilege. You know, whoever creates a family foundation has just received a massive tax benefit. And so you must, from the very first day of existence, prove yourself worth that. And I'm not so sure that across all pockets of private philanthropy, that that's always been true. Even in our own mission, we make it sometimes a mistake uh, here or there where we're certainly not worth our designation. You can't be perfect all the time, but that's the objective of philanthropy is there's a cost to every behavior in the world, including even setting up foundations. You know, you could have just written that check to the government or you could have, um, uh, 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 you know, capacity of your family in the next generation, but you did this, uh, is it worth it? And so I think that, that um, you know, the direction of private philanthropy for a while has been to try to, tr to take the opaque or sometimes solidly painted over windows um, and create some transparency into the decisions, into what's going on in there. And sometimes we've looked in there over history and found things that um, that we don't like that we see as trends. And, and some, but sometimes also it's not that. It's really that the, the, the field benefits from that transparency because there's always room for improvement. So there's been a directionality for philanthropy. What, what's, a, how's, what's an example, again, for a school leader to see more transparency? What's an example of... Right. So, uh, so skipping ahead a little bit, one of the phrases we talk a lot about is trust-based philanthropy. Now, that's not a phrase you would have heard much five, six years ago, and in fact, maybe even not three or four years ago. Now everybody's talking about that. Uh, and, and what that means is to say, look, there's this power dynamic between who has resources and their decisions to give it. And 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 there's this sort of mystery. And, and in the past, they would have said, look, the best way to do philanthropy is to just put an open application on the internet Make, write down some rules for who can apply and then never meet anybody. Just let them find that and apply so that you don't get subjective. You know, stay in the distance, stay at arm's length. Don't answer your phone if they call. Just let them all do the same thing. And if everybody gets the same experience, then you look at the eight and a half by 11 pages they turn into you and then you render a decision with your board every quarter, every month or whatever your cycle is. That's probably... Joe, that was it. I mean, that was 2007, 2010. That's what many foundations were doing. Right. And, and you know, and, and you just say, well, what what's wrong with them like, for doing that? And I'm not really saying that that was necessarily coming from a place of mistake. And in fact, there's sometimes that's what a foundation should do. It depends yeah. on what their objective is. Maybe if you're a scholarship fund and you just literally have one program and you're trying to give about you know 50,000 scholarships out and you're not going to meet 50,000 people. Maybe you do just have an application that's rules based. You have an algorithm that ranks people in order of need. And then that, that's who gets the first stab of that means based support or whatever. And so I'm not saying there's not a time and place for that. But if that is ubiquitous uh, about how we do philanthropy, which it kind of was a little bit, that might not be the best. On the other end of it back then, you also had those that were like, no, we're invitation only. 
Um, you know, you may not apply to us unless we call you first. And we will already have decided what we want to do before we talk to anybody. Um, and so that approach has, I think, a, a, a trend of, of, of what you watch out for um, uh, the other direction, which is really sort of like, who knows best what's going to help people? Somebody sitting in some sort of an ivory tower or somebody that's literally grew up there who has an idea about what, what would have made their childhood better. You know, um, and, and how does that voice have a voice if the only people that have the money didn't grow up that way? Uh, and so I think that you, it's not to, to criticize the first or the second is to say, what's the right thing to do for this this particular mission investment? And there's a and, and, and to really analyze that and not to make so, so much of an assumption of best practice or rules. And in the middle, we're talking about trust based philanthropy. It really encourages an equalization of the power dynamic, if not an empowerment of those who need help, those who are trying to do heroic things to bring systemic change because none of us would be in this business if we were satisfied. You know, mm -hmm. if schools were perfect, we wouldn't be talking right now. With that being said, let me take a second to introduce our sponsor, Catholic Virtual. Catholic Virtual is the trusted online education partner of Catholic schools worldwide. They develop customized online learning solutions to meet the needs of their partner schools and students. Visit their website at www.catholicvirtual.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. If homelessness didn't exist, we wouldn't be talking right now. And so we're here because something needs to change. And and, 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 in, and probably too many of the grants that were given out through the online application that was so impersonal really missed something from somebody who might not have been a good grant writer, who's a tremendous program person, right? who might not have been a good, um, you know, prose person, who's a tremendous teacher, you know, and, and really who should get the investment, the best grant writer or the best program person. And so that other approach is really missing that truth. On the other side of it, you know, uh, where's the best idea going to come from and whose voice should be loudest? And, and, and my experience too often is the foundations and money that whose voices are always be sure they meant their stake always can make sure their that their own voices are heard. And, and I think it's the responsibility of philanthropy to be intentional because when you're not, that's this is the dynamic. It's been my experience on both sides of the table as an asker and a giver um, or I would say investor uh, that. Um, that unless you're intentional on the power side, the dynamic will be that the money has the power and, and that the other side will just say what they think you want to hear. And they will um, and they will never tell you when it's not going well um, uh, because they're afraid to lose the funding. And you create that by being mad when something doesn't go well. Uh, and so trust based philanthropy in the direction of, the, of this is, 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 I think, towards saying, did you did, did we have the same goal in mind? Did we both agree this might or might not work? And then we took the leap together. And then you tried your hardest and we rooted for you. And the results were, of course, different than we expected. But it was absolutely that we both proved that we meant what we said. And so then can we look at that again and decide what we're going to do together next based upon what worked better than we thought it would and what didn't. And I think that's the direction generally we're trying to take it. And in part, it's because we're learning from others. So I think it is the trend of the field. It's what it ought to do. I also think in specific cases like diversity, equity and inclusion. You know, that we every single industry is having to level up 
in the way it probably should have uh, 250 years ago before they even wrote the Constitution. Um, you know, and so we're still catching up to our ideals as a nation. And so it's not this is on philanthropy to get better by this, but we have an outsized responsibility to manage to that than perhaps the food bank does. I'm pretty sure the food bank's not breaking any rules compared to us when it comes to that, because they are a force of equity, whether they're asking too many questions about it or not, as long as they're not taking the demographic poll at the, at the line outside. But So I just think DEI is, is affecting us tremendously. And I think in the next 15 to 20 years, it could become existential for, for, for philanthropy, because there's, you know, you have philanthropy that's trying to uh, fight uh, uh, against um, the reality of a need for what I just described. And you have philanthropy that's trying to learn to, to be better because of that. And uh, to me, and then you have philanthropy that's already decided, you know, uh, even further down the progressive land. land. But if, if you're not trying, uh, I think it, you, the risk there, if philanthropy doesn't, um, is, is that it might, it might fail on that question, should you exist? Should there be private foundations? And I think we have to answer that question in a way that, that makes the answer yes, because I shudder to think what would happen if you took away this designation uh, and the work that's come out of our organization and others. So I do believe that's another trend is, is that there's a lot of stuff being discussed and we're, we're expendable uh, in the minds of others uh, if we don't make it clear that we're on the side of, of learning and equity. Yeah. You know, Joe, I mean, one of the things we, we wanted to chat about was, you know, how can school leaders specifically engage with foundations? And, you know, you've told us a little bit about the importance of uh, trust, mutual trust. You've talked about the responsibility of the foundations um, and also the responsibility of the schools. And, and we all know, yeah, I mean, I know as a school leader, it's tempting when you're making an ask or writing a grant simply to say, I I wonder what they want to hear, and let me tell them that. Yes. Now, Joe, you and I worked together eight years ago on a project, and we developed trust, and we had honest and open communication, which I think was great. It took a little bit to get there, right? And once we got there, we, we were cooking with gas. So yes. what advice do you have for, for school leaders who, who might be listening, uh, who are listening, just about how to work with foundations? Well, I've experienced both of you, uh, uh, Tom and Rob, uh, working in advancement uh, of a mission before, whether you were the director of that organization or a fundraiser for them or the president of the NCA. And so I would say to do it the way that I experienced you guys um, and the way I'd like to think that the people we work with and myself have tried to do it. And that is to say, look, you don't start by saying I need money. You do need money, but you don't start there. You start by saying, what is the change I want to affect in the world? Um, and what is the problem I'm solving or what is the opportunity I'm seizing? And then you get yourself in a place where you can't help but ask, because if you don't ask, that thing you just have an itch to do that will make a difference can't happen. And I think that that is so fundamental to what I think needs to happen before any sort of strategy to get a foundation's attention happens. Because if they come to us and you could tell they haven't done that, and you can it's not like you're mad at them. It's just you have to then sort of try to steer the conversation back to there so that they can understand, look, we will never give you money if it's what you're asking for is money. Yeah, you can tell that joke. I have money. You, you, can, you can tell when people haven't done that work yeah. to build starting with their mission, right? 
and, and, and the other thing about that is, is because I'm not trying to villainize that the, the, the fact that that happens. The truth is, is I've done it myself. It's only natural. Right. And the other thing is, is you're dealing with, especially in Catholic schools or in other many, many, many of the best. I would say the typical nonprofit that's making the biggest difference in the most efficient way lives on the precipice of scarcity. They, they, they are on a shoestring. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, people talk about the fact that we've lost half of our Catholic schools over the past 50 years and lost about 70 percent of the enrollment. Uh, and that is a that's why I'm here. Uh, it's terrible uh, when I think about how much impact if we hadn't had that happen uh, would have been there. But at the same time, uh, uh, it, it's more remarkable the ones that have survived. It's more remarkable how that one kid whose mom is making $15,000 a year and has three children, how is she paying any tuition? Yeah. It's like the loaves and fishes. It's absolutely a miracle on this earth that these schools manage to get by and that these nonprofits manage to get by and don't just get by. They make a tremendous impact. Right, right. And so, you know, so but, but in that environment, do they see their impact? No, because the reason they got those results is they lost sleep every night for the last 10 years. They um, they probably took 10 years off their lives and to the point of burnout. And the, and it's not how could how could I judge if they're at a point where they just can't see the possible anymore and they're living like uh, on in scarcity. And the, the predominant question for the past three years has been, how am I going to find the money? So when you say, what do you need? And they say money. I'm not critical of that. I'm just saying, don't start there. Uh, uh, and I'm saying instead Great start in a place of possible in a Catholic context, providence is a very important concept. I, I live my life according to that more than most things. And, it, and my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Barlow, taught me that providence, and I'm sorry this is not what the Baltimore Catechism says, uh, but it's what I've took, uh, uh, it is that God put a compass in your heart to know what's right and wrong. And if you look at that empty desk and you say, that shouldn't be, or you see that closing school, or you see that test score, or you see that, and you, that's not the way this world should be. Well, when your heart tells you what ought to be, it automatically means that it can be. God would not make a world where the right is not possible. He made a world where the right's possible, but it's up to us. And I think that that's the way you should approach your asking, and it's the way we should approach our giving. And it's not about us being different than each other. We're both players in the same story, and neither of us has the power of this. If you say something so compelling that I hadn't thought about, and I had pre-forward that conversation decided I wanted to do X, and you start talking about Y, and I'm like, oh, they're talking about Y. I want to do X and I just tune myself out because I've already made up my mind about what's the biggest difference maker. I'm, I'm, I'm making the biggest, big a mistake as the person that says I need money. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, it's not really, a, it's really about, we're all part of this. And I'm really interested in, and that's my biggest thing is, is that all of this should be moving away from this sort of, uh, pr uh, this sort of subsidiarity uh, or, or parochialism, uh, where it kind of, uh, it, you know, everybody's an island in and of themselves and, and stay in your lane. And I'm more interested in solidarity. And um, 
I'm very interested in uh, a dynamic where not just one foundation, not just one asker, but all the askers and all the foundations are sort of sharing, uh, trying to find truth together. Because these problems, whether it's global warming, the education system, immigration, hunger, homelessness, pandemics, none of them is solvable by any one sector, any one player. And so we all have to strive for a, a, a single vision in a world that's extre- extremely uh, moving in the direction of a binary view uh, where we each go into our separate silos of, and echo chambers and side up and against each other in, in a world where we're actually all in it together. You know, Joe, if we could um, come, come back to schooling and, um, and education, what, what trends are you seeing in K-12 education and how are you and the, the foundation responding? Yeah, and, and it's here that part of this is what I hope is the trend I'm seeing uh, instead of the things that are distressing. There are distressing trends that I'm going to kind of avoid a little bit. I do see a rise in the parent. Uh, and I saw it before the pandemic, and I see it. I saw the. I see the pandemic. And I'm very interested in be watching this over the next couple of years. I think all eyes were on education mm-hmm. here. They they were before, but before those eyes were would would have been um, trained to see it a certain way. It might be the teachers' union, or it might be a political party, or it might be their own schooling experience. But like everybody feels like they have the answer to schools because they all went to school, right? <laughs> And it seems like there's only two answers, this size and this side. So, uh, and I think that you could see from you know the 1990s to 2020 that the, the, the fact that we have charter schools in almost every state, you know, you could fight about that, but we do, and we didn't before. You could talk about school choice and tax credit scholarships or vouchers or other things. Or you can talk about magnet schools or differentiation programs, or you can go back and talk about the desegregation period in the 60s and 70s. There's been a trend toward uh, choice, a trend toward differentiation, and then the science has said that for a long time. The differentiated learning, personalized learning experiences, um, uh, specialized small schools, uh, you know, these things have been around us. But I really have felt that that trend has been like frog in water for most people. You stop someone on the street and ask them what they think about education. They say the same thing they would have said in 1995. But the actual thing that's going on in the world, there has been some change. The pandemic, I believe, changed how people were thinking. And they started to think for themselves for the first time in a long time. And I think it's so healthy. You don't want to waste that crisis outcome uh, because everybody is like, whoa, I've been being told for a long time. This is what I'm supposed to think. But I'm here in my home with my kid and this isn't really working for me. All the, no one's listening to me. Uh, you know, and so I think all this. And then wait a minute, over there, that school is open. Why aren't we open? Oh, I'm homeschooling. I all of a sudden I appreciate the teacher in a new way. Or so I, what I really see is a trend that I can't speak to where it's going, but I actually find it healthy. And I just hope we don't just like I don't know shut down this period of openness and go back to the way we were before. Is uh, that parents in particular and students are are awake. And that they realize that what's best for them in their household is not what's not best for the teacher, but it is distinguishable. It's not what's not best for school, but it is distinguishable. And it's not what's not best for a community, but it's distinguishable. Each family has their own perspective and they're going to have to raise their voice. 
And, and so that's a, a huge trend. I think we also learned a lot about what can and can't happen in school and out of school settings. And there's some pretty fantastic things that can happen in both that we didn't know about. Uh, and, I, and I don't think those have anything to do with pandemics. And we found out that some kids did fantastically in age group trends and personality trends and need trends are very traceable to that. Uh, and so I also think that we learned who is bad. We talked so much about choices in education, but we learned a lot, I think, this past period that we have not digested about who does well in what setting because of all the settings that were forced upon us. And so I think these are the trends, but my hope is, is that they define the policies and investments and options that are provided. And I'll admit some skepticism about whether that's going to happen. But Joe, you talk about parents and um, my wife is a kindergarten teacher here in Chicago and and she found the gratitude of the parents the past year unbelievable. And, um, you know, I think a lot of them are humbled by the pandemic and and the great the gratitude. Her, her school was open all last year. And and, you know, these are four and five year olds that hadn't seen people for months. And uh, the parents, she was just blown away by the gratitude yeah. of, of some of the parents and their engagement in their, their child's learning. I'm a parent of five kids. Um, uh, and, and they've been in as many as four schools at one point in time. We adopted three of them. So just to say that there's four different biological s- sets of parents that have uh, fielded this group of five. And so they all have differences. And it's so hard as a parent to find a choice. So I can attest to gratitude uh, as a parent. Uh, and I've seen that myself. And to put it in reverse, my Facebook feed and, is, and social media is flooded this month with people celebrating their goodbyes to their kids as they're going back to school again. And right. so I've never seen so much happiness for the start of the school year. Right. Uh, uh, and obviously, parents have always been a little celebratory about the end of summer, but this is something different. Uh, yeah. So, yes, there's gratitude. And I think it's uh, that's just one manifestation of where it's coming from. Is this this is this this is hard. To, to care for kids learning and is and to be put in a position of primary or co-equal responsibility for that as so many parents have i think that they've learned oh wait i've only ever been a student right right and, and as a student all you ever do is is is, is um, immaturely judge the teacher <laughs> and and right. you know the past year teachers worked so hard Right to learn how to deliver education in online, virtually, hybrid. Some kids at home, some kids. I mean, it's just a remarkable effort. And you know, I mean, I had super fun a couple of days ago. Um, just you know, paying a visit to school. Uh, took a bunch of ice cream um, and just took it there and gave it to my buddy, who's the principal, just for the teachers to have an afternoon snack. And they were thrilled, but they were excited to be getting ready for school and have the kids come back on Monday. And it's just remarkable to see that, that love and care for kids uh, on the part of teachers, particularly after a really tough year last year. It is, um, it, it is a time for us to reevaluate um, uh, the value that we place on the roles in our society. And that doesn't just include the teacher, but if it doesn't include the teacher, then what's wrong with us? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, like after the gratitude we just experienced, after the knowledge we have, now it's actually 
Um, you know, we were ignorant before, so we could have probably excused our lack of action. But it's time for us to recognize that, you know, the guy bagging your your groceries at the store is worth more than you thought he was or she was. But in the teacher in your classroom uh, is um, probably the most important node uh, in many ways in any community. And if you ask a kid if they like their school, it and then you ask them in a separate question on a survey, do you like your teacher? It's the highest correlation. Yeah. That teacher is the school yeah. for that. Right. Yep. And, and so the teacher is uh, fundamentally the most important person in the family besides the parents and the kids, uh, not even the school, that teacher. And what we do to support that and, and, and surround it with support and did we do that this year and are we going to do it now uh I, you know i really hope so because i think the teachers have also been asked more of in unfair ways than ever oh, before yeah. Yeah. and and that burnout that was already occurring in an underpaid underthanked environment when the and let's be clear the gratitude this year has also been met with a lot of um of anger with a need for outlet I'm not saying that parents are mad at teachers necessarily, but there's a lot of reasons to be mad at the world right now and at, 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 at anything. And teachers get to be the punching bag often for that because who else is a parent going to gonna you know vent at? And I just think you know it's so important that that gratitude that you're talking about, Rob uh, and Tom, uh, is translated into appreciation that is actually um, felt. In, in material ways by teachers. How? I don't know. Uh, but I, 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 I worry. And I also think that, it, you know, society needs to um, to think about talent and where it's recruited and where it's paid where, uh, in, in, in extremely different ways than it has in the past. No, Joe, that's a, that's that's a big one. We could do two more podcasts on that on that subject alone. But I um, want to res- be respectful of your time. And uh, as we come to an, a close here on this um, episode, we have a final question that we ask all of our guests. And that you may have already answered, but we'll see if there's another one. Who is your favorite teacher and why? So I'm one of five boys to go to St. Michael's School in Olympia, Washington State. Um, and then on into public high school, I said, and I did my undergrad at University of Portland, uh, Holy Cross College, and then I did uh, my master's in education at Notre Dame, and uh, I did law school at Seattle University. So, uh, and then in, in, in my professional life, have been mentored at every single step. So it's really hard to answer that. And so anybody listening to this, you know who you are. Um, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, and so I, I'm going to answer it at the elementary level because of the nature of this podcast. But if I was talking to somebody about a different thing, I might answer it differently. Um, <laughs> But I said Mrs. Barlow earlier, um, uh, and, you know, she was a very uh, rigorous fourth grade teacher. Um, but it was a, it was a, at a point in my um, emotional development uh, and uh, that um, I uh, uh, was just very open to the big questions of religion and life and its meaning, which is such and so great about a Catholic school that it allows for those big mysterious questions to be the purpose of the school. And so you're always allowed to ask a question. That's what I learned in Mrs. Barlow's class. She could be teaching science, 
She could be teaching history. She could be teaching math. And if you just get a God question in your head or a morality question or, a, or something, she's, she, she would stop and answer it, even though she was strict, even though she didn't like interruptions. There was always time for a God interruption. And she always had these pithy answers. That's why I gave that. I still remember that if it's right, it's possible. That's mm-hmm. providence. You know, and I was gifted by my parents with a legitimacy for questions like that. You know, they didn't just give me straight answers. Uh, my dad was an atheist and he converted to Catholicism after I was baptized. So there was always this openness to question and not, we don't need to actually have an answer that's right. It's the question that matters. And are you doing the right thing with your day and your time for others? And so anyway, Mrs. Barlow um, uh, was one right. of those teachers that just cared for your moral compass. And I think I'd probably be sitting behind bars or something right now. <laughs> so I'm going to say Mrs. Barlow. Great. Well, thank great. you. I had a sense you might be going back to Mrs. Barlow. So. Yeah. Well, Joe, uh, thank you for joining us today in the next class. And for all of our listeners, hope you are all safe and thank well. Thank you, Joe. Tom, any final thoughts? I uh, know that's wonderful. Thank you, Joe. And uh, that your your response makes me think of my teachers. Let's all think of those who formed us and so generously gave to us throughout our lives as teachers uh, and those who are doing the same for our children and for those members of society. It's great. Great. You. Thank you, Joe. And uh, all you listeners, we hope that you'll join us for the next class. We hope you enjoyed this episode today. If you did, we'd greatly appreciate it if you would share this episode with your friends and family. If you get a moment to rate or review us, that too would be much appreciated. Have a great day.